take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to, just in the reading this morning, retreat just a few verses from chapter 13 into verse 12 for the context of it. We'll pick up in chapter 12, I mean verse 27, and we'll lead that into our reading of chapter 13 this morning. So really, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, which is covered ground for us, but it will set the tone for the second part of 1 Corinthians 13, which is not covered ground, and we'll cover today. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually, And God has appointed these in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, after that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing." Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. 
But the greatest of these is love. And then if you'll allow just the first two words of chapter 14. Pursue love. I know that last week was a tough message. It wasn't an easy message to preach either. But regardless of what got into me, it has been on my heart for a long time that we understand the command to love as that, a command to love. And having tried to make that point in the previous week, uh, it seemed insufficient as the next week unfolded. And I have to tell you, I was pretty stirred up before I got in the pulpit last week. I don't like to do that. I don't like to be emotional in the pulpit, and I don't like to get stirred up because my goal is to preach what the Bible teaches and not anyone's you know, personal slant or take on that. But I do think that last week was important. We, we looked at love as a command that perhaps was being neglected or confused at times in our own church for feeling or sentiment rather than an obedient work. And that's really what love is. It's an obedient work. It is obedient to have the kind of love that's laid out through the first seven verses of 1 Corinthians 13. Now it's an obedience empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not something you can do or accomplish in your own flesh. So everything that you are going to require to love people the way God has called you to love people, really without exception, as we've seen in the command, be it stranger, neighbor, brother, enemy, friend, the power to do that is going to have to come from the Spirit of God. It's not going to come from inside of you. And this is really hammered home in verse 8, which is where we pick up this morning when Paul writes, love never fails. Now as we continue through the rest of the chapter, Paul seems to having described some of the characteristics of love, he seems to be taking a moment here and comparing love to some of the other things that the Corinthians had become so enamored with, so impressed by. And that's why we kind of retreated to chapter 12 there. Because the end of chapter 12, there's a lot of impressive stuff that's mentioned. Miracles. I've never performed a miracle. Speaking in tongues some language that you don't understand. And God having someone there to either interpret it or having someone in their own language hearing something that I don't even understand the language that I'm speaking. I, I've never done anything like that. And the Corinthians were enamored by these kinds of things. And yet we know how Paul closes chapter 12, yet I will show you a more excellent way. And those are the first seven verses of 1 Corinthians 13 on love. And then he shifts in verse 8 to compare love to these other things. To these really impressive things. And that's when he says love never fails. Now, several times through the rest of this chapter, 
The words in English are going to be translated in a way that makes it easy to read and kind of put together. But it's one of the few times where we're kind of hindered a little bit by not seeing the original language. Because in the original language, Paul uses the same word for fail over and over again with a couple other words that we translate in English as fail here. So if you were reading it in the original language and Paul kept using the same word in specific places, that would stand out to you because he was using a different word in other places. And this really drives home a point that will be resumed in chapter 14, but nevertheless we need to see it here. When he says love never fails, the Greek word there is ekpipto. And you don't have to memorize the Greek word, but it means love never falls away. Love never dissipates. It never subsides. It never... And when we hear that, we automatically have to stop and say, well, <laughs> yes it does. Or at least it seems to. We see examples of love dissipating and falling away all the time. All the time. You see it between friends, between spouses, between neighbors, between family. Love falls away all the time. In fact, one of the ways that we use to describe broken relationships is with the phrase they've had a falling out. <laughs> so love falls away all the time. And this is where we see the distinction between what Paul is talking about and what the world so commonly confuses with the love of 1 Corinthians 13. In other words, we see the distinction between human love empowered by mere human strength and sentiment versus the love of God. What Paul is saying here is the spiritual gift of love, the love that God gives us as believers from the Holy Spirit does not fail. That kind of love does not cease. And you can just take a minute in reflection and put that up against the kind of love that we see all the time and that people profess all the time. And it can draw a pretty strong contrast. Love that is merely human falls away. But love that is from the Holy Spirit does not cease. It does not fall away. And he's going to use an example of a couple of other things that seem really impressive here, but that are going to stop one way or another, whereas love never will. Love is, and we think, well, what do you mean? Love never will. Well, of course it will because someone's going to die. No, 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 no. Love, which comes from the Spirit of God, will never stop. It persists right through the moment of death into the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever. Love is a characteristic of God. Love is a way by which God describes himself. Going so far as to have in John's letter the phrase, God is love. So it doesn't stop. But a lot of the other things that people in the Corinthian church had become enamored with would stop. And so he's going to give them a couple of examples. Verse 8 he says... 
But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. And where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Now these seem to be in the Corinthian church the three main areas where people were really impressing others. They stood up and they had a word from God. They had you know, prophecy. Something to communicate from the Lord. Remember, this was before the written New Testament was complete. So they stood up and whereas we would prophesy from the scriptures, a word from the Lord, they would stand up and say, well, I have a, a message, a teaching from the Lord. And they would have to make that case from the Old Testament or from the sayings of Jesus or from what the Lord had put on their heart. And that was really impressive. It's still impressive when people stand up and when they preach well the Word of God. You all don't see enough of it, but it's impressive when it happens. And they were really impressed by it. And he says, where there are prophecies, they will fail. And you could read that and you say, well, what do you mean fail? Prophecies aren't supposed to fail. He doesn't mean where there are prophecies, they will be demonstrated to be false. He means they'll stop. Not like love, which will never stop. Prophecies will stop. And then he gives another one. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Now, I've never seen speaking in tongues in a biblical way, period. I'll just say that, carte blanche. Maybe you believe you have. I can tell you full out, I never have in a biblical way. And I believe that's a very specific way. <clears throat> Come back next week for chapter 14. But it sounds really impressive when you read about it in the book of Acts. Really amazing. And he's saying, look, that stuff that's really impressive to you, it's going to cease. And then where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Now even today, even among those of us who really don't have any intellectual desires or who really aren't you know, that enamored by folks in white towers who record lectures and things like that. Even today, when you come across someone in everyday life who clearly knows what they're talking about, it's impressive. Even more so when you come across someone who understands the things of God from the Bible in a way that seems comprehensive and unambiguous and clear and has the ability to explain that clearly, that's impressive. At least it can be impressive. He says, where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Now, here's where that language thing comes up that's interesting. When he says, prophecies will fail and knowledge will vanish away, in English, at least the New King James, I read fail and vanish away. But in the Greek, the word is exactly the same for prophecy and knowledge. It says, they will kartageo, which means they'll be made void or of no effect. So what he's saying is at some point, prophecies are just not going to be a thing anymore. They're not going to be effective. They're, they'll be made void. And that word, kardageo, is used throughout the New Testament. And, and each time, it's, it will be void. It will be ineffectual. It will be, so it's pretty clear what he's saying. Same thing with knowledge. At some point, knowledge is going to be void, ineffective, ineffectual. Now remember, he's talking about the spiritual gift of prophecy. And the spiritual gift of knowledge. At some time, these two showy gifts are going to be rendered ineffective and void. And if you're sitting there, you're like, well, when would that happen? I mean, here we are 2,000 years later. Well, he's going to explain it. But before we jump there, 
the one in the middle, the spiritual gift, the miraculous thing in the middle of tongues, whether there are tongues, they will cease. The ceasing is a different word. So you have where there's prophecy, it will cardigeo, it will be made of no effect. Where there are tongues, it will cease. And that is pao in the Greek, meaning literally stop, cease. It's, a, it, it's correctly translated in English. Very clearly translated. Cease. Where there is prophecy, it will be made void or ineffective. Where there are tongues, they'll stop. And where there is knowledge, it will be void and be made ineffective. And then he picks up the theme on prophecy and knowledge in the very next couple of verses. But he doesn't pick up the theme of tongues, which he mentions, but doesn't explain, until chapter 14. So he's introducing the idea that tongues are going to stop or that tongues are a little different from prophecy or knowledge. But then he speaks to prophecy and knowledge here in these verses. And he doesn't speak to tongues. That's in the next chapter. Now when he speaks to prophecy and knowledge, this is what he says. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Now... He doesn't say a word about tongues there, but he deals with the two bookends of spiritual gifts that he's comparing love to. And he says, look, whatever you think you know about God and his plan and his kingdom, we have to confess it is not complete. It's not complete. If you're a Christian and you've studied the Bible for any period of time, you know that already. You should know that already. If anyone's not a Christian and you're here this morning, you're listening to this, maybe you're visiting, and you're like, well, I would like to, uh, I would like to learn about the Bible because I've got a lot of questions about what happened in ancient times or I've got a lot of questions about what exactly will happen in Revelation. If I learn about the Bible, then I'll know all of these things. Uh, let me help you. <laughs> Let me stave that off now. What we have in God's word is what we need to know for salvation and eternal life. From front to beginning. You can say, well, Genesis doesn't seem to talk a lot about salvation and eternal life. Oh, yes, it does. Matter of fact, if you've ever read the Bible and you wonder, well, why, does, why do we pick up the story after this flood with this guy named Abraham? Wasn't there a lot of stuff that happened prior? Oh, yeah, there is. You don't need to know about that for salvation and eternal life. But you need to know about Abraham and the story from there because it was through Abraham that Jesus Christ would be born into the world and a Savior would come and give his life to pay for your sin. But that's partial knowledge at best. It's sufficient <laughs> It's sufficient knowledge. We have what we need to know. But it ain't complete. Same thing with prophecy for the same reason. I mean, we have prophecy about the end times. That is as of yet unfulfilled. <laughs> I can't tell you everything that's going to happen in the future. I can't tell you everything that God is going to do. It's partial. I know what I am supposed to know. As best that I can know it. Because that too is partial. Now when I speak about the gospel. And about God and his son Jesus Christ. 
And him dying on the cross to save us from sin. Him resurrecting to life so that we might enter into the promises of God eternally. When I speak of the commission of the church, when I speak of the purpose of the church, when I speak of the operation of the church, I know what I'm talking about. What we have is sufficient. But when I speak of the return of Jesus, I have partial. <laughs> I have enough to understand the promise, but partial. So this Paul says here, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. In other words, there is a fullness and a completeness to the plan of God coming in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, that will render the need for knowledge and the spiritual gift of knowledge, the spiritual gift of prophecy, unnecessary. Because when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, for then I shall know just as I am also known. In other words, when we speak prophetically now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see clear because the plan of God will have unfolded in all of its beauty. The kingdom of God will be upon us. We will be face to face with the Lord. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also fully known. When we are in the kingdom of God, in the presence of Jesus Christ, None of us are going to need to utilize the spiritual gift of prophecy. We will be with Him. When we are in the presence of Jesus Christ, we will hear from Him. We won't need to decipher or to come to any hidden knowledge. We will be with Him. We will have Him. It will be complete. And no one will be looked up to at all for the spiritual gift of prophecy or for some special knowledge. It will be full. We will be with the Lord. So, when he says that prophecy and knowledge will be rendered void or ineffective, he has a very long-term view. He's saying there is coming a time in the purpose and plan of God in which these two spiritual gifts will not persist. We will be with the Lord. But love will not stop. In fact, we might say love will come into its own fully as we experience the grace of a God who has redeemed us from death and destruction and all of our needs are provided, and every tear from every eye is dried. And what does the book of Revelation say? And we will always be with the Lord forever. That's love. Let's look at verse 11 again. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now this verse has been used as kind of a proverb for all sorts of growing up things. And I just want to pause and say that's not really what the verse is about. 
The verse is not really uh, there for you to use it as a proverb to tell your son or your daughter to grow up or to reflect on your own maturation process. That's not really what it's there for. It may be effective for that purpose, and it's true. It stands on its own as a proverb. But here in the text, what Paul is saying here is, just as he grew into a man and put away things that were ineffective and void and not important to him anymore, so also when we are in the kingdom of God with the Lord Jesus Christ, these things that seem so important and showy to us now <laughs> will have been things of the past. We won't need them. We will be with the Lord. But love is not a childish thing. Don't be impressed by what I do up here in the pulpit. And you say, don't worry, I wasn't. <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> Some of you are not. Good. This is not, this is a childish thing. And when I say that, I mean, this is a thing that will not persist in eternity. We won't need it. It will be void. We need it now. We know in part, we prophesy in part, we are sinners redeemed, struggling in a sinful world with a sinful nature, and we would wander from God if not for His grace. And this is a gift that God utilizes in the church, in all of His churches, to call people to repentance and to reflection and to offering themselves as living sacrifice. This is important, but this is a thing of youth. And one day you're going to die. And if you're a Christian, the moment that you die, you will open your eyes and be with the Lord. And when you are with the Lord, you will be with the Lord forever. And all of the vain things of this world, as well as the spiritual gifts meant to get you through the vain things of this world, to operate in a sinner's life, you won't need them anymore. Now, some of you don't like coming sometimes and sitting in the pew and hearing either hard things or boring things or difficult things. I understand. I understand. It, sometimes my kids don't want to go brush their teeth either. <laughs> These are necessary things for sinners in a fallen world. But they're temporary things. They're not forever. But love, love is forever. It is who God is. Now we land in verse 13. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three. Now that language, and now abide, means and now they are and they abide. In other words, they will not stop. They will not cease. There are spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit that fill the life of a believer that are superior to the temporary things of the childish age that we live in and they abide. Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. What an interesting conclusion. The greatest of these is love. After all, if you possess the love of God, you possess it on the other side of salvation. If you have salvation through Jesus Christ, you have it by faith. 
And yet here, love is the greatest of these? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Because love is of God. The other two are in God, but love is of God. A Christian's faith is in God. A Christian's hope is in God. But love is that earmarker that defines them as a child of God. Because God is love. Love is the spiritual genetic material that shows up in a believer's life that identifies them as a child of their Father in Heaven. We saw that when we looked at the command to love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you and persecute you, despitefully use you. For then you will be like your Father in Heaven. Anyone who does not love is not of, does not know God. He is not of God. Why? Because God is love. Love is the reason why you have a gospel to believe in. The love of God demonstrated in Christ is what you put your faith in to receive the spiritual gift of love in the first place. So this is not some insignificant thing. Now I want to look at three passages with you this morning. Three passages, and we'll add a fourth at the end, that combine... Faith, hope, and love. Because these three are repeated in texts all throughout the New Testament. Justin read another one this morning from Romans chapter 5. If you were listening, you would have heard. Faith, hope, love. Working together. I want to look at three different ones. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. Now this one we'll look at relatively briefly. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 4 through 6. Speaking to the Galatians who were very confused about how they became righteous and how they were saved. You know Paul has been teaching about this on Wednesday nights for a while in the back. Paul writes, you have, the, no, I'm sorry, Paul Royer, not the Apostle Paul. He hasn't been joining us on Wednesdays, only through the text. I should have clarified. Not everyone's with us on Wednesdays. He writes, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. You see, faith, hope, and love in the passage. Where is the power? Faith working through love. You think that Keeping your religious instructions profits you? Paul says, I tell you, you've become estranged from Christ. Going down this road. We hope for the righteousness that's in God. We don't, we don't go out and grab it for ourselves by keeping some moral code. The righteousness of God is not found in merely keeping some moral code. 
We, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith, not in a law or command. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. The righteousness that we hope for is not found in a list of do's and don'ts, but faith working through love. Hebrews chapter 6, if you'll turn over to there. This is where the power of Christianity is. It's not in rule keeping. It's not in attendance measurements. It's not in waking up every morning and reading a passage. It's more than that. Now here, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 6 has just dealt with those who have walked away from the faith entirely. And in verse 9 he says, But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. We're confident that this will not be you. You'll not walk away. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love. Now we read in the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13 that labor in and of itself is not love. You remember that? Though I sell all of my possessions and give them to the poor, though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Work, sacrifice, in and of itself is not love. But there is the kind of work that is a labor of love. Love can produce work. Which you have shown toward His name, in that you ministered to the saints and do minister. Minister is the word serve. Serve. Saints are Christians. What was their labor of love that they're being commended of in Hebrews 6? They served Christians and continue serving them. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The work is a work of love. If you're serving Christians, if you're serving Brothers and sisters, if you are ministering to the people of Jesus, you are performing a labor of love. Hope is the fuel of that labor. You can see it there. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence. Don't give up. Don't stop. Be diligent to it. To the full assurance of hope until the end. They are hoping in the fruit of their labor. And faith is the power. Verse 12, do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith is what makes the promises of God attainable to us. 
It is the power of salvation. It leads to the Spirit of God which fuels our life with love, which fuels our life with love, and the fuel is hope that God will fulfill all of those promises, that our labor will be fruitful, that our reward will be in heaven. I think that some of us find it very hard to maintain Christian ministry. And I understand. But I think that some of us find it very hard to maintain Christian ministry because they, they run out of fuel all the time. We run out of fuel all the time. Our hope is not in what it should be. The reward of heaven is not as desirable as the rewards around us of other things. First Peter 1 13 through 25. This is the third passage. First Peter chapter 1 verses 13 through 25. First Peter 1.13 Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to see a word in the middle of that verse that I think is really important and speaks to what I just said. It's the word fully. Gird up the loins of your mind. I think that's Paul's way of saying focus. I'll try that with my fifth graders at basketball practice this week. Boys, gird up the loins of your mind. Now we have to pay attention to this. Focus. Be sober. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is your hope fully in the grace that will be brought to you at the return and manifestation of the great Lord Jesus Christ? You can be honest with yourself, I hope. Is your hope fully in the grace of Jesus Christ? If some part of your hopefulness about life and the future and other things rests in other things, then it should not surprise you that you are running out of fuel in Christian ministry. Because Christian ministry, Christian service will not take you to those other things. Christian ministry, Christian service is done with a mind towards what it promises. The reward at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ where your hope is supposed to be fully vested. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Former lusts, former desires. People think lust in the Bible is always talking about some gross sexual misconduct. It's not. 
lusts means desires. In other words, before your hope was fully vested in Jesus by your salvation, it was vested in other things. And Paul, sorry, Peter here doesn't mince words. That's ignorance. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be, you also be holy in your conduct because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. What does holy mean? Set apart. Sanctified. Set apart for service. The things in the temple of God were holy because you weren't supposed to use them for anything else. You know, there were all sorts of things in the temple of God. There were lampstands, but you weren't supposed to use that lampstand for anything else. You were supposed to use it for worship to God. So he says, you be holy. You, your life, should be set apart. Not for all the things that you used to desire in your ignorance, but set apart to God. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, then conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. He's speaking of this world as if it's a hotel. Conduct yourselves during the time of your stay here. I've stayed in a lot of hotels. They always say the same thing when they hand me my key and I turn to walk away. Enjoy your stay. Enjoy your stay. Enjoy your stay. That is not Peter's message. He is saying the opposite of enjoy your stay. He's saying, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things. You weren't saved by corruptible things. Neither should you be in pursuit of them. <laughs> That's what he says. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believed in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren. Oh my word, what is he saying? Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, the truth is the gospel, through the Spirit you've purified your souls, in sincere love of the brethren. Your soul, before salvation, was corrupt and dead. Your soul, after salvation, is obviously alive and well. That purification process took place by, what does it say in verse 21? Faith and hope in God, obeying the truth in verse 22. But the purification of your soul is described as the obvious and evident love of the brethren. 
No, loving Christians doesn't save you. That's not what it's saying. Faith, hope in God. Obeying the truth of the gospel. That saves a person. Faith in God. But the purification of your soul is described as sincere love of the brethren, loving one another fervently with a pure heart. Get it? A pure heart? Your heart before salvation isn't pure. You can't have that kind of love. You have the kind of love that falls away. Hum mere human love. Uh, but on the other side of salvation, your heart has been cleansed. It is pure. And now it loves with God's love. Verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Young, strong men become old men and old men die. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of the Lord endures forever. Your life is but a vapor in the wind. This is the word of God. Some of you right now are in your strength. The world seems like a wealth of possibility. And some of you are retreating from your strength. And some of us are old. Some of us are tired and fragile. And we didn't used to be. This is the glory of man. The old uh, monks who would go and put themselves in monasteries would collect skeletons and bones. And I'm not advocating monastery life, but they would collect them not because they had some infatuation with the dead, but they would look at them and they would remind themselves this skull is a mirror that I'm looking at. This was a life. This was a person. These were eyes that saw and lips that kissed. This was a face that smiled. Tears falling down on cheeks. And now, this is the glory of man. I want to read to you. You don't have to turn to it, but I want to read to you Revelation chapter 3. I know... Clayton read a couple of times one of the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 last week. I want to read one from Revelation chapter 3 as a challenge. Verses 14 through 22. It's probably the most infamous one. I think it's fitting. I can say John writes, but it's Jesus who speaks. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, 
These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now that's a scary thing to think of metaphorically when it's Jesus looking at your life. I, it's scary enough to hear from the mouth of the Lord, I know your works. But the frightening part of this is they appeared to have a foot in both camps. I know your works. They're neither hot nor cold. They are simply middle of the road. I wish that they were either hot or cold. If they were cold, you'd feel the pain of repentance, conviction. If they were hot, you'd be serving me. <laughs> There'd be life. There'd be power. But they're just in the middle. You're in an in-between Sometimes you feel conviction for the way you're living. Most of the time you don't. But when you don't feel the conviction, it's not because you're really serving the Lord with passion and fire. It's simply because you're in the middle. Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. And now here, here's his explanation of that. Verse 17, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Now think about that. Their lukewarm approach to living for Jesus Christ is the consequence of their belief that they don't need anything. In other words, I interpret that to mean their hope for a good life is in the world and seems fulfilled. They don't see a need for more than what they have. They say, I am rich, I become wealthy, I have need of nothing. We know from this next part, their hope is certainly not in the things of God. Look at what it says. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Now, this is the letter to the church in Laodicea. Laodicea was a very wealthy place and a very comfortable place to live. In fact, it was famous for the hot springs that were there in the valleys of the mountains. And very rich people would retreat to Laodicea and they would spend extended periods of times there. And then out of this community there arose a genuine group of believers in Jesus Christ who recognized that they were sinners, who knew that they needed to serve the Lord. And out of this very comfortable life, God worked. People were saved. A church was started. And now the Lord Jesus 
is revisiting a generation of that church in the book of Revelation who has grown comfortable again with the easy life of Laodicea. Their hope is not in the things of God. When he counsels them, buy gold from me refined in fire, that's an echo of the Sermon on the Mount. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. When he talks about white garments, he's talking about the garments of holiness and righteousness, right? I mean, we know what these symbols mean from the scripture. They weren't interested in those things. They wanted just enough heat from Jesus so that they could feel comfortable in their Christian life, which was mostly cold. And it created this lukewarm tension between people whose hope was not really in God with professions of faith as if it were. They had adorned their lives with wealthy things and they took confidence in that. They did not think they needed anything because in this hotel stay on the earth, they didn't. They didn't. And here is the Lord's evaluation of them. You do not even know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He says, buy gold refined by me. I'll give you garments to clothe you. Anoint your eyes with salve so that you can see. It's like the emperor has no... They could not even see the condition. They couldn't see it. So confident they were in their lives that they had what they needed. Where does your confidence lie? I'm not asking what the religious churchy answer should be. I'm asking you genuinely... Where does your hope and confidence actually lie? Because I hear a lot of from time to time, I'm doing good. I have all that I need. Everything's good. Everything's good. And I'm happy that things are good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not wishing for you that things were not. But I want you to understand if you have money, or if you have resources, or if you have food, or if you have a job, or if you have a husband or a wife, or if you have children, or if you have a retirement savings, or a plan, or whatever it is, that is all dust to dust and ashes to ashes. Your hope is to be fully in the grace of our Lord Jesus at His return. Fully there. And if it's not, it doesn't surprise me and it shouldn't surprise you that love is really hard. That the kind of love the Bible describes is really hard. What do you adorn your life with? What are your riches? What are your treasures? They can be people, they can be things, they can be accomplishments. What is it? It shouldn't be any of those three. Your treasure should be Christ. Your riches should be in heaven. Your hope should be in Him. And so your labor 
should be a labor of love for him. I don't want to just get repetitive and repeat myself. But you need to think about these things. Jesus is threatening the comfortability of this church in Laodicea, perhaps here. I don't speak for the Lord. I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't dare to presume that I did. But your hope should be in Him. Your love should be on display for Him. Your faith in Him should be empowering. And if it's not, there's a problem of comfortability and hope and false ideas and wrongly vested treasure that's getting in the way. And if that continues, there's a lot of judgment and chastisement from the Lord that you can expect if you're one of His children. I don't want that for you or for me or for anyone else here. We need to take the command to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength seriously. Let's close with the word of prayer. Father, as we turn our evaluations inward and we consider what's going on in our own lives, I pray that we will not get far away from an understanding of sin, of falling short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God in my life? What might the glory of God look like in the life of the people here? real glory and lasting glory, divine glory. Help us not to fall short of the glory of God in our lives, to miss the point and the purpose of who we are, to be infatuated with the mere glory of man which at the end of the day is nothing but dead men's bones. But if our hope is in you, if our faith is in you, if our life is in you, we might be something far greater than ourselves. We might be children of your kingdom. We might be stewards of a greater purpose we might know glory that we could never achieve in and of ourselves. And in this we would experience a reward and a fulfillment beyond whatever this earth could offer. Help us to conduct ourselves during our stay here in fear. To be holy as you are holy. Take these tithes and offerings and use them for your purpose. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.